It's one thing to live and study in another country. It's something else entirely to be installed in another country's government, advising leaders on vitally important issues. But when you do it, and you do it well, you not only benefit people in your foreign home, but the people in your actual home as well. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories. Ukraine has a, um, a very robust coffee culture, which I was very appreciative of. In Ukraine, you can get coffee in these little pods that are like all along the street. And a lot of cafes have, uh, have pretty, pretty good coffee. And so on my way to work every day, I would go to this little cafe across the street from my apartment and I'd chit chat with the girls behind the counter. And then I mentioned that I I was going to be leaving pretty soon after that, that, you know, I only had a month left in Ukraine. And we both started crying <laughs> in the middle of the coffee shop. I don't even know this girl's name, um, but I saw her almost every day for the entirety of my time there. Um, and we just developed this this rapport together. And then she gave me my coffee for free that day. And I gave her chocolate. Like, I think I brought her Hershey's Kisses on the last day that I was in Ukraine to remember me by um, because Hershey's chocolate, who doesn't want American chocolate. (laughs) This week, an American in the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, hiking in the Carpathians and singing the national anthem in a foreign country. Join us on a journey from the United States to Ukraine to combat the scourge of Russian disinformation. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Nina Jankowitz. I grew up in New Jersey, and now I live here in the D.C. area. And in 2016 to 2017, I was a Fulbright Public Policy Fellow in Kiev, Ukraine, where I advised the Foreign Ministry of Ukraine on strategic communications issues. I was prepared for a fair amount of adversity because I had worked in the former Soviet Union before and had studied abroad several times in in Russia. So I, I was used to kind of that bureaucracy, but it's very different studying abroad as compared with working abroad and being embedded in a government that is not your own. So I think it took a long time to build the trust between me and my colleagues. But when it did, it was, I mean, it really paid off in spades. Every day in my my work at the ministry, it was about exposing my colleagues to the American way of thinking and American way of of doing things sometimes. I think they were pleasantly surprised. I mean, I think efficiency and enthusiasm and optimism are not things that come very easily to an extremely bureaucratic, post-Soviet, bloated government. Um, and I think uh, it was it was eye-opening for them in some ways to, to encounter that. 
It's n certainly not an easy time for Ukraine either. I mean, they're they're fighting a war. They're dealing with a lot of small issues on a day-to-day -day basis that I was involved in. I loved attending with my, my boss, the spokesperson of the ministry, the OSC Conference on Freedom of the Media in Vienna. So she and her colleagues from the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs were there. It was very interesting to see how they were interacting with a bunch of other countries, including Russia, who were at the table talking about media freedom in places like annexed Crimea. And I also got, as as an observer there at the conference, or I guess a representative of academia in some ways, I got to see, you know, my own country at the table, which was very interesting. And I made a few statements on, on my own behalf, not on behalf of the United States. And, and being in the room with all those folks and seeing how this diplomacy is done was really, uh, it felt like an achievement. It was, you know, near the end of my, my time there. And again, I don't think any of that would have been possible. I don't think my boss would have invited me along. Had we not developed a really close collegial relationship where we could both kind of confide in each other and support each other. And, and those friendships and, um, and relationships are the thing that I look back on with most pride. I don't think there ever wasn't a time that I was proud to be the American in the room. I was there in a very confusing time for Ukraine because with the election of Donald Trump, uh, the Ukrainian government, like most other people, was surprised at the result, and they were navigating changing how their foreign policy would look vis-a-vis -vis the United States with the new administration coming in. Uh, despite all of that, despite the uncertainty, the one thing that I could always talk about was the strength of our institutions, which is the, you know, the same message that we would deliver to democratizing Ukraine today, that these institutions are the bedrock of our society. No matter who comes in and out of office, they're going to be the strength of our country going forward. And so we actually had a lot to, to draw on as Ukrainians and Americans um, in that context that, you know, democracy is not a short-term project. And I felt kind of strangely happy to be going through an uncertain time in my own country while I was in Ukraine. My experience in Ukraine was pivotal for my career now. I was advising the ministry on strategic communications issues, which, you know, because of the conflict with Russia, are on a day-to-day -day basis, it deals with disinformation. And this was something that I had always been interested in through my work at NDI, when NDI was dealing with propaganda that the Russian government was spreading about it. And then I came to Ukraine and, and found myself dealing with kind of a, a, a more robust version of that in Ukraine. And this all of this was before the 2016 election, of course. And I was watching these issues in Ukraine. The election happened. I, I wrote a paper as part of my, my Fulbright research project about the different ways Western governments were supporting anti-disinformation work in Eastern Europe, comparing them, giving some policy solutions about coordination and ways to instill a bit more longevity into these very short-term projects that were happening. And then came home and found that I had this wealth of, of knowledge from the research that I had done there and my on-the-ground experience working with th these issues every day. And so now my job is basically doing analysis and research around uh, Russian disinformation and more broadly just malign disinformation. And all of this has been, of course, at the forefront of the news cycle even this week as we're talking. And uh, I, I was lucky that the timing worked out, but also lucky to have that on-the-ground experience working in the ministry on these issues day-to-day -day because it's one thing to, to look at a bunch 
bunch of bot and troll armies online. And it's a completely different thing to see how it impacts the people that you're working with and the systems that a government uses to counter that stuff. In terms of disinformation, I think my time in Ukraine gave me the perspective to understand that you can't just fact check your way out of an information war because Ukraine is constantly under a barrage of, of all sorts of fake stories coming from inside the country, outside the country, from people that are sponsored by Russia who are working inside Ukraine. And it's, it's very confusing and very difficult to parse, especially for the average person. And so when I came to Ukraine, a lot of Western governments and, and institutions were very big on this fact-checking thing. We've since moved on from that. But it, it became clear to me early on, and I was one of the only people saying this at the time, that we needed a, a solution that was more holistic, that empowered people to make these conclusions and decisions for themselves so that it wasn't just them being told by some third party that, you know, this is right and this is wrong. But they were given, being given the tools to, to sort through this absolutely ludicrous flow of information that is coming our way all the time now. Um, and that perspective, understanding how, how individual Ukrainians dealt with that and what the government's role in all of that was, which I think is just to be as transparent and truthful, truthful as humanly possible, it, it, it's critical to the understanding that I have today of, of how we have to fight disinformation, whether it's coming from outside the country or inside. So after the election, my colleagues at the ministry really wanted to make it clear that Ukraine still wanted and valued its partnership with the United States. And I thought it might be a good idea for the minister to publish an op-ed uh, in a Western newspaper. And so we went through uh, as a team to draft an op-ed for the minister. He went through and made his edits, and we pitched that to the New York Times, and it ended up getting published. But there was definitely bumps along the way. That's the sanitized version of how that all went down. But uh, it was great to be able to deliver that message, to deliver an idea of, of why the U.S.-Ukraine relationship is so critical and important at such, such a pivotal moment. And uh, it was really gratifying to see our work in print, and that opened the door to a lot of other collaborations down the road during my time in Ukraine. I don't think I, in general, am a lot like what they might imagine an American to be. Um, and I probably went pretty native when I was in Ukraine in terms of how I dressed and how I talked. So it might have been a bit of cognitive dissonance for them. Uh, although I am quite loud and I smile a lot and I talk pretty fast. So 
<laughs> that probably uh, fit into their stereotype of Americans. But, but you know, I think I viewed those those lectures as a chance to kind of reinvigorate or invigorate and inspire a class of people that might have felt like they were being left behind. Now the revolution is almost five years old and reforms are stalling. Ukraine had a big hole to dig itself out of. And I think a lot of people were losing hope, but I was happy to tell them that, you know, from my seat in the ministry, seeing the challenges that their fellow Ukrainians were meeting on a daily basis, I still had that hope. On a daily basis, was kind of filled with wonder at the sacrifices that Ukrainians had made for their country, walking on the Maidan, walking on these squares where very recently people had been killed uh, by the government, and thinking, what would we do? What would I do, first of all, and what would Americans do in a similar situation? And I think it's been so long since we had to to make that consideration for ourselves. Um, I thought about that a lot when uh, when I was talking to people about Maidan or going down the, there's a there's an area of Maidan that has all the, the people who were shot, the Heavenly Hundred, because it's over 100 people who were killed with their pictures. And some of them were much younger than me. Some of them were much older than me too. There were, you know, grand grandmothers and grandfathers who were out there protesting for their rights. And uh, bringing that home, making that, um, it, it just made it so much more personal that I was, you know, there to support this, uh, this really important cause. One thing that made me uncomfortable on a daily basis is um, just the the limited number of women in power in Ukraine. They have more parliamentarians than the United States does that are women. But much like in the United States, although to a greater degree, in the national security apparatus, there's very few women. And I was lucky to be working with a, a very uh, confident and um, and passionate woman who was spokesperson, Mariana Betza. She's, a, she's a, now the ambassador to Estonia and is a great inspiration to me. But I think even in the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which has a higher percentage than most other ministries, the disparate nature of gender representation is is pretty evident. There were many, many meetings where Mariana and I would be the only women in the room. And the way our ideas were interpreted, much like in the United States, was often different than the way something our male colleagues would say uh, would be interpreted. And that was difficult sometimes, especially because I was there, you know, I had been sent by my country to, to provide assistance and support. And sometimes I think some men in a variety of situations, not just at work, were confused as to why I was so outspoken and why I was so um, confident. And I think if, it's, if that served anything, it just made me more of both of those things.
the best thing that we can do is to to keep speaking out and identify allies amongst us. There were some some great guys within the ministry and outside of the ministry who made sure that our voices were heard. But it's a it's a difficult thing coming from a privileged position in in the U.S. Um, and not quite understanding how how to make yourself heard and make yourself be taken seriously. And and since I've returned from <laughs> from Ukraine, I've encountered similar situations here in the states uh, as I've moved forward in my career. On Diplomats Day, which they celebrate at the end of December, they made sure I was included in all of the festivities, even though I technically was not a diplomat. They all came to a birthday party that I threw for myself, uh, because that's how you do it in Slavic cultures, and, you know, said lovely things about me. And that wasn't just my colleagues, like I said. It was, Ukrainians are just these wonderful, warm people, and uh, I, I feel really lucky to have spent a year um, amongst them. got to go to my my colleague's wedding. I don't know that this was a <laughs> a very uh, normal Ukrainian wedding, but this was an opulent, very, very long affair. It started, I think, at two or three in the afternoon and was still going when I left at midnight and I was watching my friend's dog, so I had to leave because the dog needed to get let out, but it was really, really beautiful, lots of toasts. I was made to get up and give a toast in Russian in the middle of it, which I am told is on video and I never want to see. But it was it was just a really um, raucous party with ballet dancers and all sorts of things. It was it was a great time. One colleague in particular, Natalia, was always just really sweet and caring and could tell when I was in a bad mood and made time for me, made sure that, you know, I had everything I needed, wanted to go and take walks with me and, you know, interpret what was going on in the city for me. And similarly, the, the deputy of the department, Olena, always brought me these little gifts. She'd bring me like little notebooks that uh, were in Ukrainian colors or, um, like pottery from different regions of Ukraine. Um, and before I left, she sent me this, she gave me, sent me away with this like big bag of Kiev souvenirs and things like that. I mean, again, th these are just little things on a day-to-day -day basis, but especially when you are abroad and, and don't have your normal support network, they really matter. They are able to keep you going um, when you have people checking in on you. Even if at the beginning you don't know them very well, they, they become your good friends by the end. I've never been to a city like Kyiv, uh, and I've been to a lot of post-Soviet cities. It's just such an interesting mixture of these ancient, ancient religious sites. It's where the 
Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church was founded. They've got these beautiful monasteries and, and uh, cathedrals. And on the other hand, there's a lot of Soviet architecture, br brutalist architecture. Uh, a lot of the scenes in um, The Death of Stalin were filmed in Kiev, actually, because M Moscow was probably too expensive to film in. So the main boulevard in Kiev has kind of that very traditional 1950s Soviet architecture. And, and it's also got a lot of beautiful new not even architecture, but murals and things like that that have happened post-Maidan. So it's, it's just this interesting fabric of a city. I was really lucky to live uh, right behind the opera house when I was there and I love music and theater and so I just loved sitting in my apartment with the windows open on a warm day and the opera would have the windows open and they'd be rehearsing and I could hear the orchestra playing or some tenor or soprano practicing an aria um, and it, it was just so unique but down the street from my apartment there's Golden Gate which was the historical now reconstructed um, gate to the city and walking down further from that to the ministry which was my walk every day to Mikhailovska and Sofievska squares where there are just these two beautiful cathedrals on either side of the ministry which is an, again a of Soviet building, but still very beautiful. I mean, there's not much that compares with that walk. <laughs> and then Kiev also has a lot of nature. You know, you can cross over the the river and go um, onto this lovely island where on, on my last day in Kiev, I sat with a friend having beers, looking across the river at the cityscape. And um, it's it's just such a special place. I came home to my apartment one night and um, I had a producti, which is like this little store right next to my apartment. And outside of the producti, there was a cat sitting in a baby carriage. Um, <laughs> it's just like, okay, great. I never, never really figured that one out, uh, but I have a picture of it. Near the end of my experience, I was lucky enough to be in Kiev on July 4th, and I do a lot of singing um, and, and performing outside of my day job, and the embassy got wind of that. So I got to sing the national anthem at the ambassador's July 4th party. And a lot of these, like, like at any embassy, this is a lot of who's who in Ukrainian society, tons of politicians and pop stars and entertainers and civil society people were there, along with my colleagues and friends. So it was lovely to be able to close it out that way. And afterward, I, uh, I met an MP who I had known from his days on the Maidan, and I got to meet, and this was huge because she's a singer, the winner of Eurovision, Jamala, was there, um, and we all took pictures together, and it was just, it felt great to be representing both the United States and Ukraine at such a special occasion, at such a special time in both countries' history. It was something I'll definitely never, never forget.
I knew I would travel, um, but I really developed a love of hiking when I was in Ukraine. I've always been kind of an outdoorsy person, but at the end of my my Fulbright, about two weeks before I left, a friend and I went out to the Carpathian Mountains, and uh, we did a three-day backpacking trip. Carpathians are a bit like the Shenandoah Mountains. They're not like big and rugged like the Rockies, but you know you still have quite a elevation climb. So all across these these beautiful mountains, we barely saw another soul for the three days we were out there. And then at the end of the time, we decided to engage in this kind of Slavic tradition of going to the banya, which is like a, a sauna. It was in this tiny village that we had to take a special cab to get to where we started and ended our hike. And I spoke with this guy who owned a guest house there, and I had read online that they had a banya. He was speaking Ukrainian. My Ukrainian is is passable, but my, my Russian is better, and my Polish is probably somewhere in between. So I was putting together all these three languages to make sure that we we could get in, and he, he fed us this amazing meal, and it was just, I mean, Ukrainian hospitality at its finest, and um, a memory that I definitely will always treasure. He gave us special Car- Carpathian tea, and after hiking like 35 miles, it was um, pretty much the best thing. And then he he put out this whole spread of like amazing mushroom soup and fresh salad from his garden, and like these um, pancakes with meat in the middle. So blini, they're called with with meat in the middle. And it was, I mean, I, I I'm kind of tearing up just thinking about it now because it was um, it was an incredible, really once in a lifetime experience. I want to see Ukraine a member of the European community, the way that Poland and the Czech Republic and the Baltic states, all these countries that were under similar circumstances were able to make that transition. I want to see that for Ukraine. I want to see Ukraine's territory return to it. I want to see Ukraine whole, free, and at peace. And I would love to see Ukraine as an economically viable state. It's got so many resources, natural and human. And to be able to turn that around um, would would change, I think, the economic paradigm in Europe. Um, Ukraine could feed the world through its land if it produced wheat at the, the, the right ratio. So I think all of that is within Ukraine's reach. But there are so many obstacles in the way right now, not the least of which is this occupation of its territory by Russia and, and the corruption that it needs to start fighting. But I think just like all of those other countries that I mentioned have have fought uh, these issues, Ukraine can do the same. At the same time, I I have to say, especially post uh, Euromaidan, the revolution that happened in 2014, there are so many young, dedicated people in the Ukrainian government that really want to see change. And that's true not just in the government, but at all, all levels of Ukrainian society. And I think 
that Americans uh, or Westerners in general who think of Ukraine as, you know, they, they think of it just based on the corruption report statistics, right, as this, this ridiculously corrupt country. I, I think there is a lot to be hopeful about in Ukraine. Um, and all of that hope, in my, my view, lies with the young people who have dedicated their lives to, to changing how the government operates in the past few years. My last day leaving Ukraine um, was obviously emotional for a, for a lot of reasons after having lived there for a year, but my colleagues saw me off to the airport and my colleague's husband drove me with my two other colleagues in the car with me. They they put me through security and then like watched me go through and I had to, you know, wave to them from beyond the security checkpoint. And I, I've seen one of them since then. The other one has been posted to a different country now, so I haven't seen her when I've gone back to Ukraine. But it was those personal connections that I mean, I guess I knew intellectually they would happen, but they're the things that I hold dearest to me in my heart um, after having been back for almost two years now. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget those friendships that I made. Twenty-two thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Nina Jankowicz talked about her time in the Ukrainian Ministry of Information, serving as a Fulbright Professional Fellow. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and you can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're at it, leave us a good rating, huh? We'd also love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov, or you can check us out at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Nina for her stories and dedication to seeking the truth. Ana Maria Sanitin did the interview and I edited this episode. Featured music was NRC Jump by Red Norvo and his overseas spotlight band. A Slight Minority by Shelley Mann, Wellness by Poddington Bear, and three songs by Blue Dot Sessions, Paper Napkin, Rodney Scopes, and Up, 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 and Over. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.